Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, anyone who's outside the, um, uh, the um, glass doors there and, and wants to listen to this session, there's still a couple of seats in the audience, so do come through. You'll hear it much more clearly this side of the glass panels. Um, good afternoon. A very warm welcome to this fringe event on levelling up or left behind. What role should regulators play? Many thanks to our sponsor, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, for supporting this event. I'm Matthew Gill. Um, before we start, just some housekeeping uh, arrangements. This event will be on the record. There will be a sound recording available on our website shortly. And we'll also be tweeting using the hashtag IFGLab22. And you can follow us on at IFGEvents. I'll come to the audience for questions in the latter half of the event. And when I do, please wait for the microphone to reach you. And please say who you are and which organisation you're from. Our subject today is the role regulators might play in levelling up under a Labour government. How can regulators help in understanding and addressing regional inequalities? The levelling up and regeneration bill was at the heart of the Johnson government's domestic agenda. It promised to spread opportunity across the UK, boost productivity, improve public services and empower local communities and their leaders. But so far this seems a lower priority for the new administration. Labour has committed to tackling regional inequality and has set out a five-point plan for levelling up the UK, covering jobs, high streets, connectivity, power and safety. But what would Labour do differently to the Conservatives? <coughs> Is levelling up still a helpful way to frame the debate? Should regulators have specific responsibility to consider the regional implications of their work? And where does the levelling up agenda fit alongside other challenges like world events, technological developments, and changing citizen and consumer expectations, all of which government and regulators have to grapple with. I'm delighted to welcome the panel uh, here today to discuss this, this issue. We've got a fascinating range of speakers for you. Um, to my right, um, Diane Hayter sits in the House of Lords uh, and uh, chairs the Lords International Agreements Committee, having previously been Shadow Deputy Leader of the Lords, the Brexit Shadow Minister and the Consumer Shadow Minister. She's now on the board of the Association of British Insurers. Uh, Baroness Hayter is a former NEC member and chair of the Labour Party, former General Secretary of the Fabian Society and Chief Executive of Alcohol Concern. She's the author of Fight Back, The Men Who Made Labour, and a forthcoming book on Britain's MEPs from 1979 to 2020. Welcome, uh, Diane. Uh, immediately to my left, uh, Benedict Fisher is the Director of Communications at the Solicitors Regulation Authority. He has experience across a range of sectors, including regulation, property, utilities, arts and business tourism. He joined the SRA after heading up communications at Ofwat, um, the economic regulator of the water sector. He's previously worked at Marketing Birmingham and at Nikhil, the property developer of the Palm Islands in Dubai. It's great to have you here, Ben. <laughs> great to be here, thank you. And finally, Martin Kopak, to my far left, is the director of Fair by Design, which exists to end the extra costs poor people pay for essential services like energy, credit and insurance. He has a background in consumer advocacy, grant making and regulation. Martin is a financial inclusion commissioner and an advisor to the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. He's previously been a board member of the Association of Charitable Foundations, the Nationwide Foundation and the Institute of Consumer Affairs. Thank you for joining us, Martin. So before we start, Baroness Hayter, I would like to just send out a few words about Labour's position in respect to regulation and how, how, how the party might think about it. So over to you, Baroness Hayter. Well, thank you. And, and I really wanted to do that partly to thank uh, the sponsors, the two sponsors of the meeting, because actually 
one of the things that any of you who know me know that I go on about all the time is how regulation is both underplayed and not understood and hardly discussed in the Labour Party. Uh, so it's, it's partly to say a thank you. Uh, I mean, I know the people who've come here are probably interested in regulation, but you're probably the only people in the whole of party conference who are. <laughs> so a warm welcome to you. And, you know, in, in one sense, we all know, because we've come to it, why we need regulation. It's because there are imperfect markets. Um, and traditionally, that was about suppliers, whether they were monopolies or anything like that. But also, we've become, you know, much more interventionist now about where there's inequality of either information for consumers, um, so they can't decide what to buy, which supplier to use, um, uh, or which provider to choose. Um, and, uh, you know, that has been and should be a part of regulation. So when we come to your question, it should be, this is already part uh, of the remit. But the other reason I'm so pleased to be here is that the other thing that the Labour Party doesn't talk about is consumers. Uh, it's extraordinary how little, though that we did quite a lot when we were in government, but actually we very rarely talk about it. So it's really nice that those of you who are interested are here. And, you know, you can't level up, if you like, if you don't intervene in markets and make them fairer, and you can't level up if you don't address inequalities, whether it's about region or anything else. Um, and you certainly can't level up if you don't protect consumers because they're the ones that pay the price uh, for, for unfair markets. Um, either, as I say, because they, they haven't got the information to, to be able to make a selection, or because they're choosing long-term um, uh, long products. And Martin's more of an expert, and therefore you, know, you can't measure what the outcome is going to be. To some extent, legal advice is the same. You don't know at the time you go to a solicitor whether, because, you know, maybe years later, you know whether you've got bad or, or good advice, um, or because people are getting very rare purchases, so they are not expert consumers. These are all areas that those of you who come from a regulatory background take for granted, and yet we don't discuss them enough in, in politics, uh, which is why um, it, it's so good to be here. Um, and, you, you know, the question that you, you, you posed, I think, uh, uh, in, in what you want to look at is what role should regulators play? And it seems to me the answer is they should already be playing this. There is nothing new about levelling up that regulators shouldn't be doing already because the whole point of having them is because there have been some sort of inequalities, either because of the market or because of characteristics of the particular consumer group. So, and we'll come on to it, but if there are too few solicitors in an area, the SRA should already be intervening I'm sure we're going to hear that there are. If, you know, certain families or certain types of family don't have access to legal advice or to good financial advice, that's what the regulators should already be doing. Um, so I think I wanted to, to start off by saying, although the question is what should regulators be playing in levelling up, if they're not playing this already, then I think we've got a shortcut in how we do regulation. Um, I've been involved, I chaired the Legal Services Consumer Panel, I was Vice Chair of the Financial Services Consumer Panel, and it seems to me that the consumer, the end user, doesn't have enough of a say. So if we are looking to the Labour Party in the future, rest assured that my biggest ask of my colleagues, we put the manifesto together, is there has to be a proper consumer input into the way 
that regulation happens. Because unless regulators, they should already be listening from consumers, but if they're not, then they're not doing their job properly. So I'm starting by saying, in answer to the question, what role should they play, they should already be playing it now. And if they're not, then we have to look at how to improve existing regulators. Thank you for indulging me and getting that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'd now like to turn to, to, to Ben, really, to respond to that. So um, uh, Diane's saying that um, regulators should already be addressing inequalities. Uh, so maybe you might want to talk a little bit about what the um, SRA are, are doing, and specifically to address regional inequalities and, and the needs of consumers. Yes, thank you. And um, thank you, Diane, for the passionate defence of regulation and how important it is. I'm actually absolutely passionate about regulation, and my seven- and five-year-old at home don't feel the same way. So when I talk about asymmetries in markets, they glaze over. So having a room full of people and people sitting next to me who might actually be interested in that obviously fills me with joy. Um, firstly, though, I'd like to give an apology for those of you who've um, maybe got a physical copy of the programme. Anna Bradley, our chair, was due to be uh, speaking here. She sends her apologies. Apologies if anyone's a super fan of Anna Bradley and came solely for her. Unfortunately, you've got me. But as I say, I think we've got a really good panel and hopefully we'll have a really good, interesting discussion. And I wanted to say a thank you as well to the Institute for Government and you, Matthew, for working together on this. So it's probably worth on that challenge about what the SRA is doing around regulation and sort of um, making sure there aren't inequalities. It's probably worth just setting out a bit about who the SRA, SRA, SRA if I can say it, are um, briefly. So I think... That importance of regulation and legal services really, really matters. And we regulate about 90% of the firms in the legal market. That's about 210,000 solicitors. Um, that's just uh, under 10,000 law firms. Um, why does regulation of legal services matter? Well, when people are using legal services, one is, as you said, it's often a rare purchase, but usually it's very high stakes, and it's usually at very important stressful moments in people's lives. They're trying to pass money on to their loved ones. They're dealing with a family breakup, perhaps their liberties even at stake, or they've got an employment dispute. We cannot afford, therefore, for solicitors not to be people you can trust, not to be people you can trust to, one, have the expertise to do what, do what needs to be done, and two, that they'll behave in, a, in an ethical way, particularly as they're dealing with often money, important information and life-changing issues. And I, I'm pleased to say that in the vast majority of cases, that is the case. And that's our role to try and make sure that happens through um, both overseeing the qualification process by which solicitors qualify, making sure then solicitors know what the rules are and they follow those rules. And then in the rare instances where something does go wrong, we take action against solicitors and also if for want of a better term someone is left high and dry we can step in and help someone to make sure that if for instance a firm goes bump they're not just left with no recourse at all so that is what our role is at the solicitors regulation authority but then another key part of our role linked to that sort of high standards part is we are interested in access to justice and that's one area i think we'll be probably discussing quite a lot around in terms of levelling up and inequalities. Um, and I think there was two areas I wanted to point out to, one, reassure you that we are doing stuff on inequality, but also to say there is further to go and more to do. And two big of the 
Two of the biggest problem areas are around diversity in the legal profession. And secondly, one of the biggest problem areas is around access to justice and everyone being able to enforce and defend their rights. So if we take the first one of those, which is diversity in the profession, uh, why does that matter? Well, firstly, you want the most talented people from all backgrounds to be able to become a solicitor. It is such an important role. Um, and then secondly, um, it's really important that firms and solicitors represent the communities they serve. If the solicitor's profession looks monochrome, it's unlikely to be able to serve the needs of the, uh, of the communities it needs to serve, but also actually probably trust in the profession and it is also likely to be eroded by that. And then that's going to have a knock-on effect on things like the judiciary, where we know there's challenges around diversity as well. If you're not getting people um, into law firms, um, then you're unlikely to see that passed on to the judiciary. So it really matters. How's the legal sector doing on that? Well, you might argue superficially it's doing quite well. If you look at some of the stats, we've now passed the point where there's more women in the profession than men in the profession. That definitely wasn't the case generations, uh, just a generation ago. And about one in five solicitors comes from a black, Asian, minority ethnic background. So actually, that's higher than the general population proportion. So you might think, oh, well, that looks pretty good. But the big problem is, um, is that when you look at the senior positions, and particularly the senior positions in larger firms and the big city firms, you're not seeing that picture. What you'd be seeing is a picture that looks far more like me, um, white, white men um, who, you know, older white men and a disproportionate amount who are privately educated. So that is something where there is still a long way to go for the profession. And to come to your point, well, what are we doing about that? There's a few things we're doing. We publish the data on that, collect it from all the firms that shines a light on how firms are doing and how the profession is doing. We also do a lot of work with firms to encourage um, a more diverse, inclusive culture within firms. But probably I think the biggest thing we're doing and the most exciting thing, but the jury is still out on it, is the solicitor's qualifying examination. Some people might know it as the SQUE, but I'm a boring regulator, so I'm going to call it the SQE. And the SQE is effectively the biggest reform in sort of legal education for um, three decades. The SQE is um, effectively replaces what is the old LPC route, and there's big problems with the old LPC route, as well as problems around consistency of standard. It was extremely expensive, up to 17 grand to um, take the LPC, as well as other costs on top of that. And then even if you took the LPC, you weren't, if you couldn't get a training contract, and that might be because you've got caring responsibilities, it might be because your face doesn't fit within interviews, it might be because you want to live in a part of the country where there isn't actually many training contracts around, that was a blocker to people qualifying as solicitors. The SQE, one, has more consistent standards, but two, the SQE, there's more affordable ways to qualify, there's more earn-as-you-learn ways to qualify, including in England apprenticeships. Um, and then on top of that, there's far more flexible approach in terms of getting qualifying work experience. There's far more options, puts far more power actually in the, the um, sort of the, the candidate, the trainees' um, shoes rather than actually the law firm being the gatekeeper. And we think there's big potential there to actually increase diversity and give everyone a fairer shot at qualifying solicitor, but that's only one year in. So actually come back in 10 years and then you can tell me I was wrong on that or I was right on that because I think it is going to take that time to come through. And then the final point I'm aware I've spoken a lot is around where there's big inequality is access to justice. We know that on contentious legal issues, which is what we're not talking about conveyancing there, we're talking about a dis employment dispute or 
family law, one in five people, only, only one in five people get legal help or expert legal help when they have that problem. That means the majority of people are not getting the expert help they need to defend or enforce their rights when they need to. So this isn't just a problem about, you know, the, 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 the very poor or those who have no means. Actually, the majority of people aren't getting the legal help they need when they need it. That is a very significant problem. What are, we, what are we doing about that? Well, there's a number of things we're doing. I don't think it would be silly of me to sit here and claim that a regulator is going to solve that, that problem alone. But one of the things, uh, there's a variety of things we're doing, and one of the things we are looking at, and there is potential, is around technology and innovation. If you look at sectors like finance, accountancy, insurance, there's been a huge change in the last 10 years which have empowered consumers to be able to get help through tech. That's often easier for some people. It can also be more affordable, with a huge caveat that you need to be aware there is a digital divide and it won't work for everyone. But we haven't seen the same, perhaps, momentum or growth within the legal sector. And we th we're doing quite a lot of work to try and work with third sector organisations, charities, innovators, to look at are there any barriers we can remove to tech coming into the legal sector and what can we do to help and encourage and facilitate that? Because actually there's no indication and probably the opposite that the legal demand is going to go away and as we can see so much of that is unmet legal need is out there. So that's my opening statement, thank you. Great, thanks so much Ben. Um, so we hear from that that, 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 that um, inequality can occur both in people administering regulation and also people who are the beneficiaries uh, of, of, of the regulation itself. So, uh, so turning to you, Martin, um, it'd be interesting to, to hear what you think the potential is for regulators to do more, um, particularly to help consumers, and whether there are particular sectors in which you think there's more that could be done. That might be in law, it might be elsewhere. Sure. Uh, well, funnily enough, I did prepare an answer to that. Um, and I'm going to come clean. Um, I love regulation, and it can do so much more. And I'm absolutely thrilled to bits that got so many people in this room. It's wonderful. But I'm also going to um, come clean that I am an ex-regulator myself. But sometimes I call myself a reformed regulator. I don't know. Anyway, diving into it. Fair by design. As Matthew said, we exist to eliminate the poverty premium, the extra costs for essential services. The, poor, um, the poorer you are, the more you pay. Um, I've worked in consumer advocacy now for 20 years, maybe 25 years, um, and the hardest thing to get any movement on when it comes to regulation is when it comes to people's income and affordability. Because what happens then is you get signposted for the government department to the regulator, and the regulator signs back to the government department. I might say a few more words on that later. Um, now, we know that there are certain sectors in essential services that um, are especially punitive if you're poor. So, for example, paying more for your credit because you're seen as a higher credit, um, sorry, your credit rating is not as good. Paying more for your insurance because of where you can afford to live and your postcode and linked to data. Paying more for prepayment meter because it, despite paying in advance for your energy, you still have to pay more for, for that. Um, and paying more because you can't benefit direct from direct debits. So, for example, you're on zero's hour contract. A direct debit can be really unhealthy for your financial health because if you haven't got money in at the same time each month to pay that direct debit, you'll get charged for it. Those are just a few examples. Um, at Fair by Design, we tackle the whole myth that competition answers everything, didn't you know? Actually, 
Boost doesn't exist for everybody, and it's not a fair playing, playing field out there. Um, we also believe there's um, a real lack of joined-upness between the lived experience of poverty and wider protected characteristics, for example. Not that I'm saying poverty is a protected characteristic in England yet. Um, and people's experience in regulators who make those decisions. I think it's fantastic with increasing diversity within regulators, but also I think we need to think about too that um, socioeconomic status should be a driving force behind that, which is often not touched on when regulators talk about their wider DE and I initiatives. Um, now, we've just released some really cool research, not that I'm biased, but bearing in mind the audience here, um, and we're at a political party conference, we have, for the first time with University of Bristol, got the poverty premium down to a constituency level. So go on our website at Fair by Design, please, um, and put your constituency in, and it'll come up with all the different essential services that people are paying more for in your constituency. Um, I've just said this um, to Jonathan Ashworth, and I, I think it got his attention too. But please do take a look at that. Um, it, our research also highlights the real opportunity for regulators and government if they work together by taking centralised action, because most of the, most of the policy um, is centralised when it comes to um, regulation, how much money can go back into the pockets of people in local economies? And the research shows poorer people spend more in their local economy than richer people. So if we're talking about levelling up, cost of living, whatever, there's a real case for this. Just um, if I can say a few key highlights from our research. One in eight British households experiences at least one poverty premium. The cost of a poverty premium to a typical parliamentary constituency is £4.5 million. This equates to over £430 per low-income household in that constituency. So you're talking about 10 weeks of grocery shopping there. The poverty premium varies in terms of where you live. The northeast of England being very high poverty premiums, followed by northwest Yorkshire and Humber, London and Wales. And we also know that many of the seats recently gained by the Conservatives in the last election have higher poverty premiums um, within there. So something for um, perhaps a future um, election and manifesto to, to think about. Okay, um, if the government and regulators do work together, it will put, on average, as I said, £430 back into the pockets of the most disadvantaged. But that's for average. You've got some people spending about £700 on poverty premiums. And that, this covers 3.5 million people, and it doesn't need additional spending from the Treasury. What it does mean, though, is some really tricky conversations about cross-subsidy between richer and poorer consumers. You can see why regulators and good departments are sort of batting this around now. So in answer to your question, yes, um, the regulators must have a role in tackling this injustice. But often they refuse even to collect the data. If I can give you one example, um, we're doing a lot of work in insurance at the moment because compulsory insurance, car insurance, if you lived in a neighbourhood which is um, designated as less desirable, you can't afford to move from that neighbourhood, you are charged about £300 extra for your car insurance. And also, if you cannot pay up front for that car insurance, you are charged about £150 to pay monthly as a premium on top, despite the fact an insurer can stop your insurance within a month if you stop paying for that. Kind of crazy. Is this really cost to serve? For too long now, people like me, 
and unfair by design, and people who work um, in fair by design, are past pillar to post, regulated to government department, you know, go to the Treasury, you haven't got enough data, you need to go to the FCA. The FCA will say, it's kind, it's kind of pricing risk, it's kind of social policy, go away. Go to the Competition Markets Authority. No, no, it's a sector regulator, go back to the FCA. Go to the Equality Human Rights Commission, you get the picture. Round and round we go. And we have got some specific recommendations, which I won't touch on now, but maybe later on we can. Thank you. Thanks very much, Martin. It's, um, there's some interesting uh, conceptual issues raised here, I think. Um, uh, and there's a, there's a relationship between um, the question of fairness, and you've powerfully illustrated um, the way in which different people can uh, be hit by different costs for the same things. Um, but there's also a question of who should, who should deal with that, isn't there? Um, because, the, as, as you say, the, the immediate answer from uh, a, a risk management perspective would be to say that if you're ac accurately pricing the risk, then you, know, you, you either do that or you require other people in the market to cross-subsidise people who live in risky areas. So I guess the question is, is that a policy problem for regulators to address? Or is the fact that some areas are less safe than others, for instance, or more prone to crime, is that a wider political issue? Uh, that government should be addressing in a different way. So I think there's a question here about, um, one, um, what is fairness? Is, is, is fairness um, accurately pricing or reflecting the service being provided and doing that efficiently and consistently? Or is it ensuring equal outcomes for people in different circumstances, which would be quite different? And then, whatever your conclusion on that, who should be doing it? Um, Diane, I wonder if you had any thoughts on either of those before we uh, go further. Well, my major thought is that this is a very difficult question. Mm. You know, <laughs> we have been struggling this for, 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 a, lot, for a long time. Um, and in one sense, it's easier to conceptualise it in, in insurance because the whole issue of insurance is that we share risk. I mean, that's whether it was the national insurance in a, and the NHS, is that we share risk. Those of us like myself who are lucky to be very fit spend much more, put, put more money into the NHS, and that is sharing the risk for the people who need far more out of it. So, you know, the sharing of risk is conceptually easier, I think, to say, to say yes, those with lower risk um, should be able to cross-subsidise um, the others, because actually we're all risk-sharing, and we never know what's going to hit us. Um, so, I, I think that there's a, an easier case to make, if you like, over insurance about those of us who are lower risk um, subsidising the others. I mean, when I learned to drive, we were always told that we were the, weren't believe this, that we were the bad drivers. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then they all did the maths and they discovered it was you lot. Who are the worst drivers? And we're actually very good drivers. But this lot here were the worst drivers. No, no. you men. <laughs> nice wriggle, but it doesn't work. Uh, that we are actually much safer drivers than you are. Um, and we are now cross-subsidising you. But it does mean when we have an accident, actually at that point, we're the beneficiaries. And so for insurance, funnily enough, I think that's an easier question. I think it is much harder when you're not into risk-sharing when you're into uh, prepayments uh, for a reason, for some other reason, like you happen to be poor, and therefore you're going to have a, um, a you know, a, what we used to call coin ops there. I'm sure they're 
all done by this now, but there we are. Um, where actually there is no reason to charge people more, particularly now that you, you know that there's no extra cost in collecting that money. It did used to be uh, when you did go down to the gas showroom to pay your money, if you were doing that 12 times a year, it actually was more expensive for the gas company to take your money 12 times a year than once a year. So in one sense, you were paying for the service of that. Th those days have gone, you know, it's now... We, we, we. So I think it's an easier question to answer for the non-insurers. Um, there is absolutely no reason to charge people uh, for, for a cost uh, because they happen to, to be poor or for any other reason. Insurance one, and I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone else when I say this, uh, it seems to me we have some serious issues to discuss, and it can be over genetic issues as well. Um, you know, again, those of us lucky enough to be born with good genes, the whole point is that we will take less out of the NHS than those who are not born with our genes uh, or haven't lived, lived quite the, the same life of living in the rural area and therefore not inhaling car fumes. Um, so there, I think that the acceptance of uh, a payment by those privileged uh, to subsidise the others we accept, we've now got to see whether we can take that in a broader way. We've done it already over genetic testing, but this is going to become more acute. So I think there are big issues ahead. I hope that's riddled out of question, because the answer is, I really don't know. It is a very, very difficult one. Thank you. And um, I think I'm going to try and translate the difficult question uh, to, in, in, to, to Ben, if, if I can. Um, you, you talked about access to justice. And of course, um, access to justice might vary depending on the availability of legal service in different parts of the country, but also needs for justice will vary, depending yeah. on some of the, the variations in, in um, uh, economic situation and, and social situation that we started to, to discuss. So how far do you think regulation has a role in, in um, addressing the, the interaction between uh, the need for justice and, and, and the services your members provide, as, as well as um, just, just making sure that standard services are available? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I suppose just before I answer that question, picking up on what was said, that, that sort of the, the FCA saying, oh, that's for government, and that question about is it regulator's role or is it government's role? My experience of having worked for regulators, regulators do get quite nervous if they're being pushed into a space where they feel they're, take, they're being asked to make a decision about prioritising one group or cross-subsidising one group over another. And there is a strong argument that that is quite rightly what the democratically elected government is there to, to do because they've got the mandate to make those prioritisation decisions and it's not necessarily for a... An, an independent, some people might characterise them as quango, but, you know, for, for regulators to do that. So I think that is where there's nervousness, though inevitably regulators are forced into those decisions anyway. So in the water sector, um, when, when I was there, um, rural customers are generally heavily subsidised by city customers because they're far, the, 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 it's far more efficient to serve people with utilities in a, you know, in a city often than it is. So they're sort of forced into that space anyway. But yeah, on the, on the point about justice and, uh, and access to justice and differences around the country, I mean, there, there, def there, definitely, there definitely are differences, although there probably is more commonalities. So whether you're in, you know, Port Talbot or Portsmouth, there is 
significant deprivation in every part of the country. There is significant issues with access to justice. If we go back to that figure of four out of five people not getting the legal help when they need, there isn't certain areas where there's a real problem, but actually there's sort of some utopian area where there's only there's limited problems. So I think there's probably far more commonality of problems, and our focus is generally on more that complete across England and Wales access to justice piece. Saying that, there are issues, so if you took somewhere like North Wales or more rural areas where fewer high street firms, fewer people on the doorstep, that's one reason we do think technology does have a role. And actually, COVID was quite interesting because a lot of law firms said before COVID, you can't possibly do, on, you know, clients and customers don't want to meet online. You've got to see people face to face. You've got people look people in the eye. And I don't think that was disingenuous. I think that's true. And often the high stakes nature of it means people do want to often see someone. However, COVID forced that change. And actually, research we did with Oxford University shows the vast majority of firms are keeping changes that they made during the pandemic, even hopefully post-pandemic. And for instance, video meeting of clients is now becoming far more, far more the norm. And there is potential around that. So, um, I met with the charity Conway Connect last year, which is in Chester and North Wales. Again, a sort of rural area where there isn't many high street firms. That, that's a charity that works with people with learning disabilities. And I was speaking to both those with learning disabilities and also their carers. Most of them said, I would rather have a firm that was on my doorstep that I could go in and speak to them. And that, that's definitely true. However, their bigger priority was having someone who had specialism in dealing with people with learning disabilities and understanding the law and understanding the, the particular specialism that's needed on that. And so that's, I don't have an answer as to how we fill the gap of effectively some parts of the country having less legal, legal advice. The SRA can't create law firms. What we need to do is make sure we're removing any barriers to those firms being in place and looking what's the potential for innovation that might try and fill some of those gaps. Thanks very much. There's clearly a lot here that um, regulators are potentially being asked to do. Uh, and uh, Martin, you, you, you talked earlier about the relationship between regulatory practice and government policy. And so I wondered if you, you might want to reflect on, um, given the level of ambition around levelling up and the different things government might want to achieve, how should regulators respond to that in terms of uh, whilst remaining uh, independent? keeping a kind of uh, an economically uh, or sort of procedurally independent approach to regulatory decisions, whilst also responding to government uh, objectives. How would you reconcile those two things? Not much, then. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, gosh, so much to cover. Um, I think, at the end of the day, though, um, I know we were talking about um, some markets about sharing risk. But if we're talking about essential services, I think we have to realise they're called essential for a reason. Everybody needs them. So if we're not going to have these debates about affordability, never mind cost to serve, these difficult areas, we're not hiding to nowhere, really. So um, no matter how much um, regulators talk about fair treatment of consumers in vulnerable circumstances, at the end of the day, if they can't afford it, they can't afford it. And there's something here that ne really needs to get grasped. Um, often, all regulators need to do is simply collect the data. And um, so we, we, with Emma Hardy, um, MP on the Treasury Select Committee, has been working with us, um, and we managed to, fair by design, managed to persuade the Treasury Select Committee 
um, that in the new Financial Services Markets Bill, the regulator, the FCA, the regulator of financial services, by the way, in the UK, that has no remit to even consider financial inclusion, never mind address it, should have a must-have regard to financial inclusion. I'm not asking for too much here. But with the proviso that once a year they just publish, this is what the data is telling us, that, and then this is where we can act, this is when we can't act. That would save 20 years of lobbying from consumer organisations saying, here's the problem, and you go in between, get the data, can't get the data, go back to the government department. It's not asking for that much. Um, sorry, you got me in a roll here. Um, where should I go to next? Uh, I think that there's also something here around... Um, actually, I'm going to give you a few hard examples to try and bring it to life. So... Regulators, they often need, well, they will always need regulatory cover because they're so nervous about going outside their remit and potentially being sued by the industry. So let's recognise that. Um, but thinking about payday lending, the FCA was, the FSA was really um, nervous about going into the payday lending market and looking at um, pricing of risk, etc. But when they got the remit from the government, they were okay to do it. And since then, the FCA talks a lot about the good it has done in that area. But I, mean, I think we need to have some more transparent conversations here about what could be done. So, for example, I would like the, the next Labour government to make it a requirement for every government department to have a transparent process for dealing with these issues. Not hugely controversial, but I would love it if consumer organisations can sit in a room and both Ofgem and Bayes sit together and meet with us, the same with the FCA and Treasury. It's not much. It's really not much to talk about these issues. Am I making you smile there? <laughs> <laughs> do I, do, you can tell my pain here. Um, we would like the Labour government to introduce a social tariff for low incomes um, who are struggling on energy. We would like the next Labour government to put pressure on the insurance industry and the Association of British Insurers um, to really look at how, how, how do, we, do we look at a market that's increasingly looking at individualised risk, a market that works for the healthy and the wealthy? Heaven forbid if you're not one of those. And how do we... Oh, I mentioned that we want to have a, the government to give the FCA a new cross-cutting must-have regard to financial inclusion, but importantly, being public about where they, act, where they can act and can't. We're not asking for regulators to do social policy. Let's just square that circle. Um, can I... One more minute. Um, and also, we are asking that um, the, the government to give regulatory cover for the Financial Conduct Authority to, to stop um, firms charging more if you can't pay by direct debit. If you can't afford to pay by direct debit, don't, get, don't um, pass those charges on. Um, we want Ofgem to stop energy companies charging customers more um, for not paying direct debit too, but also for prepayment meters. And people don't always know this, and I'm going to say a, a, a big thank you to the DWP, which I wasn't expecting to, but the DWP have been amazing on this area. They've had Fair by Design running workshops for different government departments to say, we can get like £700 into people's pockets here without increasing their incomes. But each government department, as soon as they leave that room, will say, we're autonomous, we're not answerable to the DWP, we don't have to act. There's something here around a body within government playing that um, ring holder, um, getting everybody together. Ringmaster, ring master, that's the one. Um, and um, I'm going to leave it there for the moment.
Thank you, Martin. Um, so I'm going to ask one final question to the panellists, and then we'll come to the floor. So do start thinking up your, your, your questions for the panel. Um, I just finally, and this, this might be a briefer question, um, picking up on what you said, um, Martin, about um, the caution that regulators have, and it's come out throughout this conversation, the kind of um, uh, nervousness that they have. Is that in any way related to a lack of regional diversity amongst regulators? Would it make a difference if more regulators were outside of London and headquartered around, around the country? Um, ben, do you want to start on that? Well, we're a regulator that's based primarily out of Birmingham, um, so and we have a um, small office in London, and then we're just about to open an office in Wales. And actually, our staff are based all around the country and actually travel from throughout the country. So I think there is di diversity within our staff there. I think that is important. That is important. I mean, interestingly, Offwat is also based in Birmingham, um, and that was deliberately set up outside London to show it was independent from Whitehall and away from Whitehall. That was often the, the logic behind taking regulators away from, mm -hmm. away from London. I mean, I'm... But dangerous if you want them to work together. <laughs> well, yeah, and, the, and, and, and that's the, that, that, that is the, the, uh, the, the uh, balancing act there. I mean, I suppose... I think you could overplay it saying that I'm, I'm very passionate about transport on the side and I do think actually perhaps our transport decisions would be different if the people making transport decisions were having to use buses in regional cities or trains that often don't exist in other parts of the country. So I do think a lived experience can change your view, but I don't think, I don't think it's the the case that somebody who lives somewhere can't properly understand. And what we do at the SRA is we get out there. So we're out there meeting the public, running groups with solicitors all around the country. We do dozens of events. Our board travel around the country. And I think that's really important that you make sure you're not just sitting in your office and getting out there speaking to people. Ben, any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's a broader issue. And it co it, actually, this is absolutely for you. It's the appointment and the way regulators work. Um, I mean, well, we're at the Labour Party, so I can say it. I mean, what uh, I got sacked from um, by Ian Duncan Smith uh, in 2010 because we won the election. He said, "I'm not having, you know, a Labour Party person." I was going into the Lords on 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 a particular board, and particularly women have been removed as uh, all sorts of appointments, and we've seen them putting in their own people. Now, you know, you're going to do some work on appointment to regulators, but actually. Uh, the way the system and their reappointment after four years, knowing they've got to keep their nose clean, does not make for innovative, adventurous regulators. Regulators have to take risks, and they play safe. And the particular people who put on them, they're not just white. Well, I, I'm nothing against old white male, but you know, it's about well, you put on people who are safe. They are, you know, the sort of questions you get when you put onto a regulator is basically, are you a safety-first person? And actually, regulation shouldn't be about that. It should be about ways and means. Is there a ways and means of, a ch of, of solving a problem? So I think we've, you know, this is the work that I hope the Institute for Government is going to be doing, is, is, is the sort of appointment uh, to regulators. Um, I've, I, I've got turned down for so many because I'm an awkward, you know. Well, actually, you need some awkward on regulators mm. who say, why don't you do something? Well, well, yeah, okay, you've never done it before. It can be done. So I think, I think that regulators have to change, and I think that is more important than physically where they're located, particularly, actually, because of COVID and that, we all work much more remotely now. So it, I, I don't think that is. 
I mean, I think the interesting thing is about also the physicality is 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 getting together. I was smiling when when Martin was speaking. The idea of getting two regulators together in the room. Um, it's a different issue to this. Well, it is about regulation. Um, I know none of you are going to feel sorry for me, okay, but I'm a politically, a, a, a politically exposed person. Mm. And us politically exposed persons have a hell of a job. Yeah. We can't open new bank accounts. We can't become check signatories for charities. Our children, our grandchildren, our brothers and sisters' uh, bank accounts sometimes have to be um, sh shown. We are going through a really difficult thing. And actually, we're quite clean. So the oligarchs can bring their money in, but if you're a parliamentarian, you can't. It took us two years to get the, H, the, the Treasury and the FCA together in a room with us who were the consumers in this sense. I know we're very privileged consumers. I, I accept that if you're a parliamentarian, you know, you're pretty privileged. But if we took two years to get the regulator and the Treasury together to meet us as a group of consumers, I was just wishing Martin good luck if he mm. can do the same. But there is an interesting thing. We don't normally meet. And so you get a problem, which is a very real problem, very small compared to the consumers you're interested in. So we do have to have more adventurous regulators. So I think the answer is going to be the Institute of Government, I'm afraid, producing some really good thoughts about why regulation has failed to solve problems that were in front of them. Mm. And if you can do that, Get out some recommendations. In time to go into the manifesto, you'll be doing very well. Thanks very much. Um, I guess we have to give a shout out there that we are um, hoping to um, start a programme on regulation, which this is uh, in, in the vanguard of, and do read our report, Reforming Public Appointments, on the appointment mm -hmm. subject, which is out last month and gives a roadmap for reform of that whole area. Um, I think, Can I just Martin, do you want to come in? Just I love this question, I absolutely adore this question, because I, I used to be responsible in a regulator for, for taking um, high up people for little field trips to different parts of the country, great. You know, you, you might see the CEO of a Citizens Advice Bureau, local bureau, you see the office, you might get put in for somebody in front of a consumer for a little while, great, nothing, nothing bad with it. But then everybody goes back to Canary Wharf at the time when I was in that um, area. Um, it, it's about cultural change. So you can have different offices all around the country, but fine, no problem. But unless you're going to do something different, um, so at, at Fair by Design, we would work with people in poverty and um, ask them about what are, the, what are the questions that should be asked by regulators and what are the solutions. And then we try our best to get regulators to spend time with people in poverty um, listening to what those solutions are. So we've just done a multi-month um, project in the East End of London for Ofgem about what does a just transition to net zero look like if you've got no money. People in the East End of London who, who are in poverty want to play a part in, the, in, in being green energy consumers, but it's got to be really, really cheap. It's not rocket science, but it's about putting policy makers, policy wonks like me and oh, the rest of us probably, um, in front and giving some of that power to other people to come up with the best solutions for them instead of us making technical decisions about competition and markets working in a theoretical way. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. So, um, who has a question? There's a gentleman there, uh, followed by a gentleman at the back. Um, please tell us who you are and where you're from. Um, I'm David McNeil. I'm from the Law Society that represents solicitors. Hi, Ben. We're at the Labour Party conference, and I think it's worth rec recognising that Labour Party did the biggest uh, intervention in a failing market uh, with legal services in the 1940s when they introduced legal aid. And that's been 
being eroded steadily, progressively, and rather dramatically in recent years. Um, uh, I was interested in Ben's story about, um, about legal advice for um, families who, um, with uh, special educational needs of one form or another and how they challenge the system. Now, Ben's absolutely right. Technology can help deal with geographical distance between people who need the help and the specialist lawyers who can provide the help. Um, but actually, fundamentally, in that market, even with technology, there aren't enough of those specialist solicitors because legal aid is collapsed. And there are, you know, you could say the whole country is a legal aid desert for that kind of specialist advice. It is unviable. Um, there is no alternative. There's, the voluntary sector can't fit, fill it in. There's, you know, there's no alternative provider that could be trusted in these incredibly sensitive circumstances. So my question is come back, which is, and I was really interested in what you were saying, Martin. There is, yes, of course you can find £700 without providing investment in people's incomes. But actually, what's the limit of that? What's where regula regulation on its own can't do enough, and where actually investment is required for the whole of the panel? Thanks. So um, technology can get you so far, but there just isn't enough money in, in the system. Uh, ben? Well, I'm going to be the stereotype of the regulator I was talking about, of that... Um, what you, what you say is obviously true in terms of the um, yeah, le legal, aid, legal aid funding and there haven't been cuts in that. But for us as a regulator, that is very much, that's the, that's, the government, that's the government's decision. We need to do what we can do within the means we have and the mandate we have to look at what we can do to improve access to justice. I suppose the only additional point to that is, obviously that's very important, but even, even if you look back pre-2000 and um, sort of 10, 12, it wasn't the case that everyone was accessing legal services easily, being able to enforce and defend their rights before then. So it's, a very, it's an absolutely important issue and right to raise it, but then there is, there's beyond that as well. It's not, it's not the, only, the only solution. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. Can I just say that the whole um, innovation and tech and all that, I'm not going to go to one more hackathon. I'm always put in front as a charity guy, in front of all these wheezy people who know everything about fintech and all these types of things. I come up with a problem. Basically, poorer people are harder to take, make money from in these, in these industries, and they're kind of, it's not really the problem we wanted. What's the next one? So I'm not going to any more hackathons on that. Um, and I think we just need to recognise some people are just not that profitable and we need intervention. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say is that we've produced an inclusive design guide for um, industry in essential services, um, so energy, credit, insurers. So how do you design your products and services inclusively? But um, we've also produced a guide for regulators and government departments too. How do you share your power and create the best essential services? What's interesting is that the financial regulator have put the firm guide in their, in their guidance, but aren't using the guide for regulators themselves. Just putting it out there. So I promise to take the gentleman at the back, and then we'll come to this. Uh, hi, yeah, I'm Michael. I'm a public sector economist. I work as a regulator. Um, so uh, one of the biggest challenges I think many regulators will come at you with, um, particularly I think on the suggestion you were making around, um, I, I don't work at the FCA, but um, the FCA's, uh, you know, having a, a, another have regard, is that you just get a flow of, essentially you're treated like a Christmas tree. There's another government priority hung off you mm. that isn't really 
your core purpose that you were set up to, all very important. A lot of people think about the way this works. And you know, often the staff are very culturally close to public sector missions and such like that. But there is a problem with undermining the clarity of focus that you have as a regulatory body to deliver on what you were initially set up to do. Um, so I'd be interested in the panel's comments on, on that point. And then just a slight aside, a lot of the uh, really interesting points you uh, making about financial inclusion, uh, you know, that's not necessarily regional leveling up. Um, I'd be interested in your views on what you think the most important regulators are for regional leveling up. Uh, because you need to actually prioritize when you want to bring them together. If you just bring 50 regulators into a room, you're probably not going to have the most productive conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you. Two questions there, both important, I think. So um, enabling regulators to focus. And, and Diane, to some extent, this is, this is on government, isn't it? It's easy to ask regulators to just do everything but, um, but, and, and then sort of push the prioritization decisions off onto them. And it's partly because we don't define what the role of a regulator is. You know, I'm going back to the Labour Party, actually. Uh, the regulators, A, come under different departments. So, you know, the FCA comes under one. Uh, the Financial Reporting Council comes under another. So even a, 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 in an area of similarity, they come under different departments. And there is no... Uh, is David still here from the Ombudsman? It was the same... Uh, has he gone? No. Um, with, with ombudsmen, the different ombudsmen came under different departments. So when we were trying to actually improve the way ombudsmen work, and whether you could have a single ombudsman, because sometimes if you're buying a house you, and you've got a mortgage, you're not really sure whether the problem is with the mortgage provider or with the solicitor. I'm sure there's never a solicitor. Um, uh, or, or indeed with local government that's been very slow on the searches. And actually it was different regulators, to, to, uh, different ombudsmen to deal with each. And, and it's impossible to actually talk to one department that, that owns ombudsman, the ombudsman world. And it's the same with regulators. There is no minister who feels and, and breathes regulation like some of us sad people do, who can therefore look across and say, what actually is the function of regulators? You know, at the beginning I was sort of saying, well, I think there are, you know, they are there because certain markets don't work. And that's what they should be there for. And therefore, trying to get them to solve a different problem, A, means a different sort of skill set. It means a different sort of, um, not just management, but, you know, problem solving, um, than, than if you're trying to deal with these, the, these social or economic or indeed ge geographical problems. Um, I, so I think you'll have picked up from me that I am not sure that the regulators should be dealing with uh, a leveling up or, you know, these, these enormous um, political, they're political problems. We have inequality in this country uh, and that is a political issue which either our tax system or our wage system or our uh, education system should be, should be dealing with. So, um, you know, we, we really must stop using them as, as, uh, as Christmas trees and, and, and adding different things. But we, we can only do that, it seems to me, is if politically we are very clear why we're using regulators, what their role is and their responsibilities is, are. One of the jobs should be to listen to consumers because, you know, there is no one other than a regulator, really, to listen to consumers in these markets that don't work. In other words, that consumers can't work 
in a, in a perfect market. They can't just move around uh, their provider. And I think that the nearly all regulators, sorry if I'm upsetting anyone in the audience, have not been good enough about screaming, listen, our end user is getting a poor deal. It may not be for us to solve, but we're hearing it. So I think that, that you know, they do have a job as voice, which maybe should be added, but we need to be very clear why we're adding it, and it's because it's an imperfect market. Um, sorry, I was trained as an economist a very long time ago. Um, I think the socio-economic one is not for regulators because actually all the things we've just heard about a regulated industry is also the same in, in a non-regulated industry. Uh, they get a, a bad deal going into, into Sainsbury's as well because they can't afford to buy you know, the six-pack rather than the four-pack rather than the one-pack. Um, and that happens to be an unregulated industry, but the same people are suffering from the poverty premium in unregulated markets as they are in regulated markets. So I don't think we can expect regulators to do that. I think that's where I'm at, but actually today's discussion is making me think about this. So I'm going to have to go away and do more work on it. <laughs> Thank you. And I think the other part of the question I'll, I'll maybe put to Ben and Martin, and I, it's, it's a difficult one. I think the challenge is setting financial inclusion to one side. Are there specific examples of areas of regulation where you would want to do different things regionally to try and support people uh, and support levelling up in that way. Do you have an answer on that one? I, I can have a go. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so um, when it comes to essential services, which often regulators are set up um, to, to, to work on, um, almost all the decisions are centralised anyway. But if you collect the data at a regional level and see the disparities, you get a clearer idea about how you can address inequality. And I would say um, income is an inequality. Um, and I would say essential services should have a remit for that, otherwise why are they called essential services? And we are supported with the socio-economic duty being a characteristic, which was the original intention when it was going through as a quality act, the Equality Act. It's interesting that both Scotland and Wales have made socio-economic duty now a protected characteristic. It'd be fantastic if Labour got behind that in the future because thinking about lots of the decisions made um, by regulators, often London-based, UK-wide, unfortunately the socio-economic duty is not making its, its, its way there. And in terms of the Christmas tree, um, I guess I would say if a regulator is not getting the basics right for the poorest in society, um, an, 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 an extra branch on that Christmas tree is well worth it. So, yeah, and just a space to me, Anna, that water is an obvious area from my old life, water and sewage, because there's a total regional dynamic there, because unlike gas or electricity, you can't send it off long distances. And so prices vary massively in different parts of the country. It's well documented the southwest was an area because of the clean-up of the beaches programme and the rural dynamic had far higher bills. There has to then be a recognition that that comes with different challenges. You potentially get more bad debt in areas which have more deprivation as well as higher bills. So that is an obvious area where a regulator definitely needs to take a regional approach. And similarly, um, water, there's different water supply. There's problems with water supply in the southeast of England in a way there isn't in Northumbria. So again, that puts a totally different dynamic. On the um, clarity of focus point, I think it's a, a great question and a great point. I think you should be able to hopefully go into most boards and execs of any organisation, not just regulator, 
ask them to name what their three priorities are. And if you get an organisation who most people or everyone is saying the same thing, that's probably an organisation who's got a pretty good focus and is probably, by virtue of that, hopefully doing a good job. If you get a massive mix of stuff in there, then that's obviously going to be a challenge. And I suppose we as a regulator, we have our legislation, there's obviously government, but we, we have a three-year strategy which we set out what those three priorities are, talking to everyone, including government, including loads of different stakeholders, and we're then committed to that strategy, and everyone can see, look, that's where we're focusing on. So if there's a big political movement for that to change, then we need to have that conversation, and actually we're due to go out and consult on our new strategy this, this, this year to next year. So if you've got any views on what we should be doing differently, come and speak to me or the team, because... Now's the moment to do it. Thanks, Ben. So um, we've got the gentleman in the middle who I uh, promised to come to, the gentleman here, and we'll come to you if we've got time, but we're, we're getting tight. Hello, uh, Arjan Geuwege, Energy Intensive Users Group. I represent large energy intensive industries in the UK. And I have to say, boy, I recognise what Martin said. Basically, when my members have an issue with regulation, basically, Ofgem tells them to talk to government, and then Bay says, talk to them and you're continuously in that so it's not only households and individuals it's businesses as well who are caught in that loop um, then again I have to say I'm used to work for government so they've got a perspective as well if some uh, business came up to me saying we have an issue with Ofgem so I talked to Ofgem over with energy regulation talked to Ofgem but what I've did notice from Ofgem and that's different than we did a civil service is a distributional analysis so that builds on Ben's hater point. Do they have actually the skills to identify the issues about redistributive issues and then the evidence to quantify that and then the further ones act on the evidence? Uh, I could not see that in Ofgem. Basically what I do, a welfare economic approach, you have alternative options, but it has the highest net present value, that must be pretty efficient, Bing! and just ignore all the redistributive consequences. That's a thing that lacks, from my perspective, particularly off them and probably wider economic regulators as well. So that would be my point for a labor manifesto to do that. This redistributive analysis, that's the key thing in able to change some of the culture internally. Thank you. We've got a couple of questions. So let's take some audience comments and then we'll come back to the panel in a group. Gentlemen here. Thanks, Alec Lever, Richmond Park, CLP and Labor Business. Uh, business, irresponsible businesses, of which I'm sure your members are mostly, uh, are bringing forward statements of corporate purpose, which sort of helps the regulatory function by being almost a system of self-regulation in terms of corporate behavior. Um, in an organization like the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, one would imagine that your corporate purpose as an industry would be pretty consistent. So the question is, does the SRA have a statement of purpose? It sounds like you're edging towards it with your objectives. Would all your members share it, particularly the American solicitors who are paying newly qualified solicitors £150,000 to do what different to everybody else? And is, would they have a shared purpose? Yeah, thank you. Good question. Um, and let's take the question from the gentleman over there as well. 
Does anybody else have questions they want to get in before the panellists wrap up? Yeah, hi. My name's uh, Paul Sharma. I'm from the Society of Labour Lawyers. Um, the Solicitors Regulation Authorities, your function, self-evident, it's in the name, regulate solicitors. We have the Law Society, that is a lobby group for solicitors. And can I ask you, uh, what business is it of the Solicitors Regulation Authority to be getting involved in the Conservative Party policy of levelling up? What business is it of the Solicitors Regulation Authority to be involved in fintech? Because all of this, of course, is paid for out of my practising certificate fee. And that's high enough already, thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much. So, um, there's a question about the involvement of business in the uh, dialogue between regulators and government. Uh, there's a question about whether a statement of corporate purpose by a regulator can help drive the kind of change we're describing, and a question for regulators that are paid by an industry levy as to whether they should actually have a role in delivering government priorities, which is different to other kinds of regulators. Um, They're mainly for me, I think. Do you want to start, yeah, Ben, and um, then we'll go so, to Martin? And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll start with your, your question, and you're quite right, you do pay the practising certificate fee, and there is... There's a, there's a potential tension there, and one, one worry or a perception is that, oh, well, if you're funded by the profession, are you basically on the side of the profession? It's really important we're independent, and it's really important we deliver on what our regulatory objectives are. And one of those regulatory objectives is around the public interest and also access to justice, and that gives the answer on that why we're interested in legal technology. Because I think, as we've established, there is a massive problem with access to justice, access to legal services in this country, we need to look at what we can do, and is it, it is actually quite a small proportion of um, our, our, our budget, the vast majority of our budget goes on that, the bread and butter of ensuring high professional standards, making sure those who qualify are good enough to qualify, making sure um, consumers are protected if something goes wrong with a firm. But we think looking at tech and innovation and what we can do to encourage that is really important in terms of our duty to make sure we're trying to increase access to justice. Then on the levelling up thing, beyond the fact I'm sitting on a panel about levelling level, leveling up, talking about it, I don't think the SRA has committed um, either to um, any Conservative Party or Labour Party agenda in that sense. What we are aware of is that is obviously, um, there's a key conversation around that, both from the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, I think, have had a five-point plan around levelling up. So it's there, so it's worth us addressing how we think legal regulation fits into that. So I think that, that and I'm happy to have a chat with you about that afterwards if you want to. Want to. And then on your question around um, sort of ESG and law firms and their purpose, I mean, one thing we've got to recognise, we regulate, there's the law firms who turn over more than two billion a year who we regulate, and then there's someone earning 30, 40,000 pounds operating out of their house who we regulate. Those are world apart in terms of the profile of those individuals and also the profile of their firms. So in many ways, we regulate many different types of firms, many different types of um, businesses, many different types of individuals. We have, I think, increasingly, we've put out stuff around firm culture, um, and particularly traditionally, I suppose, some people might say we focus more on regulating individuals as professionals, as solicitors, rather than the focus being on on firms. I think there perhaps has been a shift in the last few years for a greater focus on firms and firms culture. On the issue of environmental sort of social governance, although 
we haven't mandated firms are in the direct, uh, uh, go in a certain direction. That is something we are, we are looking at. And I suppose an important point, law firms are members of the Law Society. They're not members of um, the Solicitors Regulation Authority. They're regulated by us. It's important. There's blue water there and independence there, and it's quite right. There's a representative group to lobby on their behalf. So I think law to be, call themselves a solicitor, you've got to meet for certain standards, but how a law firm decides to position itself from a sort of purpose point of view is a decision for, for the law firm. Great. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Martin, any brief final remarks? I don't think I could tackle those ones, and you've heard <laughs> enough from me probably already. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. And uh, the last word then to you, Diane. I'm going to be very provocative. <laughs> um, I'm a member of the Society of Labour Lawyers, so, uh, uh, you know, and have been for a very long time. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, I was very involved also with setting up the Legal Services Act and then, you know, uh, worked work very closely when I, when I chaired the Consumer Panel. I, I mean, any regulated profession, be it a doctor or a lawyer, you know, it's a closed shop, and we, the, we uh, as a nation, through our law, through statute, we protect the closed shop for you. We do not allow someone to come here and call themselves a solicitor unless they have been regulated and all the, the stuff that the SRA does. And that is a public good. That is to defend consumers. Um, and it is to make sure that consumers have in, in these really important areas of their life, a service they can trust, a service where if something goes wrong, it's put right. Um, and uh, so we, reg you know, any regulator is, is, is behaving on behalf of Parliament um, to, to safeguard consumers. And therefore, it seems to me that where the regulator says there is a better way of providing legal services in the, in the interest of consumers, then of course regulators should do that. And if law society members uh, want to continue to, to practice in the closed shop, uh, it seems to me that the uh, regulators um, sh sh should do that. Um, it's, um, it, it is a privilege to be a, a, a member of a, of a protected profession. There are a number of others who would love to be protected. Uh, you know, uh, I think we haven't dealt with will writers yet. Are they still, they're still on the list, aren't they? They're... Well, there's, a, there's will writers, yeah, do, do, do exist. Some are regulated, some aren't. Some are not, not yeah. and, and certainly no, quite a lot would love to, to be in, in, in a regulated profession. So, yes, I think there are obligations, and I'm really sorry if your law society money has to be used to further enhance uh, what we want the legal profession to do for consumers, uh, but I think that's right. Um, I think that we forget, and I'm very guilty of this, of forgetting about business, because I come from a background very much of, of representing individual consumers. Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I still need to remind myself, particularly small business, that business is a major user of, not every regulated, um, but, but you know, most regulated, you use the law, you use financial services, uh, you use the, the uh, utilities and I do think that regulators need to um, be very attuned to the fact that it isn't just individual consumers but it's but it's business and I think we're not we're not good enough of, of listening to that as to having a statement of purpose 
I think everyone ought to have one. I think we ought to have one in our daily lives. I think we should have one in any group we work for. Um, and therefore, I think that the more anyone, the Law Society for its own lawyers, it doesn't need to wait for the SRA to ask a lawyer's firm to have a purpose. The Law Society itself could do that. So could any other group. Uh, and, and I hope that that is a a way of making society more more responsive to consumers, that everyone would do it. But then that's just me again about consumers. So I'm thank boring, you. I know. <laughs> Not at all, and thank you very much uh, to all of you for joining us uh, today. That draws us to the, to the end of the panel. A particular thanks again to the Solicitors Regulation Authority for sponsoring uh, this event. Um, uh, please do join us again for other Institute for Government events coming up um, at the conference. Uh, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, we have Andy Burnham on levelling up an English devolution. And at 12 noon, Chion Wura on innovation for growth and reducing inequality, which might be a particular interest um, to this audience. Um, many thanks for coming, and please uh, do join me in thanking our panel.